0: This is an excerpt from the Akasa Sutta, In the Sky. Just as in the sky above, winds of various kinds are blowing, coming from the east or west, blowing from the north or south. Some carry dust and others not. Some are cold and others hot. Some are fierce and others mild. Their winds are so different. So also here, feelings of different kinds arise pleasant feelings and the painful and the neutral ones. So this is what I want to speak about this evening, uh, continuing with exploring some of the main strands or dimensions of our experience, the dimension of Vedana, which is often translated as feeling or feeling tone, but it's not feeling in the sense of emotion as we usually use that word in English, but feeling in the sense of, how do you feel? Good, bad, indifferent. Vedana is the degree of pleasure or pain that we're feeling at any given time. The experience, the sense of where does this moment fall? On the continuum of pleasure and pain on that spectrum, which could be anywhere from intense pleasure to intense pain or lots of relatively mild or neutral terrain between those extremes, I sometimes, uh, when I think about this dimension of experience, I have kind of a visual image of a, a Vadenometer Vadenometer the Um, the image comes to mind is one of those old-fashioned analog meters it's kind of a half circle or a rainbow shape uh, like an analog speedometer if anybody still has one of those Um, so that picture comes to my mind with the the red zones at the two ends you know one end there's the red zone of intense pleasure the other end there's the red zone of intense pain Uh, There's a middle line, you know, right in the center, marking that perfect balance of completely neutral feeling, feeling tone. And then a lot of terrain in there, a vast range of of feeling tone, of Vedana, from very pleasant to very unpleasant. I like to use the Pali word for this aspect of experience. I like to use that word Vedana um, because there really isn't uh, an English word that comes close, that captures the full meaning of this dimension of our experience. Um, We have pretty good translations for other words, like uh, the the first strand of experience that I spoke about last week, the strand of rupa. Body does pretty good for that, or physical experiences do pretty good for that. That's an okay translation. But with Vedana, you know, calling it the pleasure-pain spectrum (laughs) or continuum. That's kind of clunky. That's kind of a mouthful. So I'm just going to use the term vedana, Which that word actually comes from the root in the Pali language Vedeti, which is translated as to sense or sometimes to know or to experience. So it has various nuances to it has connotations of both feeling and knowing. And we can think of Vedana, the the field of Vedana, as literally our most ancient way of knowing, the oldest, the most fundamental, um, the most foundational way of interpreting our experience, interpreting all of the stimulation that comes in through our senses, through our nervous system, I think of it as rising out of the old brain, the reptilian brain um, that's still lodged there, you know, deep inside at the base of these very big, complex, sophisticated human brains that we carry around. Um, And I suspect that the experience of Vedana, that very ancient way of knowing, is something that we share with uh, certainly most, if not all, of other sentient life along with that that first strand of rupa, some experience of having a body, some experience of physical phenomena. I think of uh, these two strands of body and vedana, body, pleasure, pain, as linking us all together. You know, us sophisticated humans, the, the furry beings, the feathered beings, uh, the ones with scales, the ones with plates, uh, whatever else there might be, you know, pretty much all of us. It's hard to say um, what the thoughts or the emotions of a mosquito might be like. You know, I'm not saying they don't have them, I'm just saying it's hard for us to really get a sense of what that might be like. But I suspect that their experience of of rupa and vedana, having a physical body that feels sensations, that experiences pleasure and pain, probably not so different, probably not really that different. So through coming to know these two dimensions of experience in these fathom-long bodies, which are laboratories for experiencing, for discovering what it is to be alive, we have this kind of connection. We have this link to the rest of sentient life, which in turn is a launching point for empathy, for compassion, for caring about suffering, and for mudita, for caring about joy, celebrating joy. Because we know for ourselves what it is to have a body that hurts, or to have one that feels good. And we know how much we care about that, how much we want the one and don't want the other, which again is probably not so different for all of our fellow sentient beings. In teaching about Vedana, the Buddha would usually bring it up just after the topic of rupa, of physical experience or sometimes of nama rupa, psychophysical experience, physical and mental experience. Vedana uh, as a key element of experience shows up in most of the important teachings. So it's the second of the four foundations of mindfulness. It's the second of the five aggregates of clinging. In both of those lists that comes right after rupa, after body. Uh, It's seventh in the 12 links of dependent origination if you're familiar with that teaching, where it occupies um, a really key position between the first six links, which have to do with basically experiencing things, how it comes about that we experience things in the body and the mind. And then the last five links, which have to do with uh, all of our mental reactivity and proliferation and the fabrications, the stories that we build up around what we experience, which are the source of all our suffering. So Vedana, pleasure, pain, neutrality are often seen as the linchpin and the process that leads us towards suffering. When there's ignorance and not knowing, not understanding the nature of Vedana, then we're bound to continue on that cycle. We're bound to find ourselves in suffering again. Whereas when there's wisdom, there's understanding of the nature of Vedana, then the possibility opens up to cut the cord, to break the cycle. There's all sorts of new possibilities there once we come to understand the nature of Vedana. So this is a really key element of experience, a key aspect of the wisdom that we need to develop if we really want to be more free, more peaceful, which is why the Buddha explicitly called it out as a foundation of mindfulness, a dimension of experience that it's really worthwhile to learn to pay attention to. And the Buddhist model of how the mind works Vedana is said to be a universal element of mind. That means that it's present in every moment of experience, every moment of consciousness. So it's not possible to turn off Vedana. It's always active. So in any moment that we're conscious, we're experiencing something through the nervous system, whether it's body or whether it's mind, then Vedana is also there knowing or feeling that experience, that stimulation of the nervous system in this very ancient way that interprets it. How pleasant is it? How unpleasant is it? Does it not really register either of those extremes? And interestingly, uh, it's said that that happens before the more complex mental processes of conceptualizing thinking emoting uh, before any of those kick in so before we've actually realized intellectually what we're experiencing before we put words or ideas to it um, before we know in kind of a conventional ordinary way intellectually what's happening already that ancient way of knowing that old brain has kicked in and decided how we feel about it. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? So before we've um, even recognized intellectually that there's dried fruit in the chocolate, that that realm of Vedana has kicked in and decided whether or not we like it. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Uh, which from what I understand is actually what's been shown by modern research. This has actually been borne out by modern science. Some of you guys probably know more about this than I do. Um, but after one class that I taught around this topic at my local group around Vedana, um, there was a woman who's a, a psychologist who came up afterwards and she said, that's that's actually how it works. <laughs> that's actually what the research shows. But, uh, you know... Whatever tests have been designed around this, it shows that that we actually do register pleasure and pain before we realize intellectually what it is we're experiencing. This is one of many places where the modern research backs up what uh, the ancient yogis were able to figure out just with these research instruments (laughs) 2,500 years ago, which always amazes me. So, a Vedana is a way of knowing or interpreting sense experiences, this may be obvious, but I'll just highlight it. Um, It's a mind-generated experience. It's a mental phenomena. Uh, Experiencing pleasure, pain, neutrality, that's um, a mental experience generated by the mind, which, if we think about it, only makes sense. It kind of has to be mind-generated because it is so uh, subjective. You know, Vedanta is highly subjective, highly conditioned, highly variable. We ex- what we experience as pleasant or painful is highly dependent, uh, first and foremost, on our species. So, for example, what the mosquito experiences as pleasant, probably different from what we might experience as pleasant. And it's highly dependent on, as well, our culture, our family, you know, what we've grown up with, what we've seen others around us enjoying or hating, what's been available to us. Uh, it's dependent on our own particular tastes, quirks, our personal history that's given us certain inclinations, certain preferences, um, which changes over time. And it's also highly dependent on just where we are in our lives, And what's going on right now. I remember as a child being um, absolutely mystified by the appeal of blue cheese. (laughs) Complete mystery. But now you know I walk into a restaurant and there's a salad of blue cheese and I'm like hmm that sounds good. (laughs) So even just in this one uh, being you know tastes change, our perceptions of pleasure and pain change, they evolve. If we have a day here where the weather is very warm, all of us are experiencing the same, basically, ambient temperature. But some of us are going to find it very pleasant. Some of us are going to find it very unpleasant. And some of us won't have any strong feelings about it one way or the other because of this conditioned nature of Vedana. And we we get that intellectually. And we know that... uh, you know, it's different strokes for different folks. People have different tastes. Um, but on a deep level, there can be clinging around Vedana. It's very easy for that to happen. This is why one of, why the Buddha also called it out as one of the aggregates of clinging. Uh, we get hung up on Vedana in many different ways. Um, we can have uh, a felt sense, if not consciously, that Uh, what's unpleasant or pleasant for us uh, is really the most valid way of perceiving things. And what other people perceive as pleasant or unpleasant is wrong. You know, we get into lots of uh, trouble in the world around this. You know, different people having different likes and dislikes and really uh, holding tight to their particular preferences. We hang on to Vedana by believing... That our likes and dislikes are somehow stable or immutable, or that they define us in some really uh, permanent way, in some really deep way. We can feel, we can have the sense, and on a subtle level, that, that we are the ones experiencing the, the pleasure, we are the ones experiencing the pain. There can be a whole sense of, of self, of self identity that we inject into the experience of Vedana. So all these different ways and more are ways in which we're confused, we're ignorant. We don't really understand the nature of Vedana. So it's worth learning to understand about Vedana, to be able to see it, to be able to tune into it, to be able to observe it as a distinct uh, dimension of experience. But that can be challenging. It's it's a difficult aspect of experience to tune into. Uh, Much more difficult for most of us than, say, tuning into the body. For most of us, at least on a gross level, relatively easy to connect with. Um, And for many of us, it's, it's more difficult than tuning into, say, thoughts or emotions even. It's more subtle. And there's a couple of reasons for this an untrained worldling, as they say in the texts, someone who hasn't heard the teachings, someone who hasn't practiced much mindfulness, hasn't paid attention to what's really going on in the body and the mind, uh, tends to notice only the more intense manifestations of Vedana, those experiences that, that fall into the red zones at the edge of the meter, things that are either very pleasant or very unpleasant the idea of neutral feeling is mostly foreign uh, to us before we take up practice. And a lot of the mild pleasure, the mild displeasure, it tends to just fall below the radar. We just don't notice it most of the time, don't pick up on it. I find it very telling that we, we don't have a word for Vedana in English, uh, or in most of our Western languages, I believe, probably in... In many or most other languages as well. We have words for pleasure and pain, you know, so we must see those. <laughs> but we don't have a word for that whole dimension of Vedana. So we tend to conceptualize uh, Vedana in those terms, not as a spectrum, not as a continuum, but as, as these discrete episodes or events of pleasure and pain. You know, now I'm feeling pleasure and now it's over gone. Now I'm feeling pain, and now it's over. I know it took me quite some time to get what the teachings about Vedana were pointing to, um, because I perceived it this way. This is how I've been uh, conditioned to perceive it. I saw that there were times when I felt pleasure very clearly, very strongly, it was obvious, I was aware of it. And there are times when I felt pain very clearly, very strongly, I was aware of it, it was obvious. But these seemed like separate and unrelated experiences that came and went, Uh, much like other emotions or other emotions that I would feel. You know, I would have episodes of joy, they would come, they would go, they were gone. I'd have episodes of sadness, they'd come, they'd go, they'd be gone, kind of like that. And pleasure and pain seemed to operate the same way. Um, And I had no sense at all (laughs) of what neutral feeling might actually be uh, in practice in my actual experience for a long time. Um, And didn't really get what it meant for Vedana to be happening at every moment. So it it takes some reframing of our understanding of pleasure and pain and how they relate to start to be able to bring it into focus, to start to be able to see it. Um, It takes um, bringing in and including our understanding that wide area in the middle of the meter, in the middle of the dial, that's just kind of mild or neutral. And then we can begin to look and see, can I actually observe this in my own experience? Can I tune into the field of Vedana? Another challenge in bringing Vedana into view is that we seem to have a natural tendency to confuse it with the experience giving rise to it. So, for example, instead of noticing a sweet flavor, a hard texture, a chocolatey smell, and pleasure, we notice delicious food. You know, we, we lump it all together into one experience. Or instead of noticing burning, tightness, stabbing, and unpleasantness, we notice back pain. You know, we conglomerate, we aggregate things together, different strands of experience. We tie them together and we don't see that there's really different ingredients in there. So until we start to actually look carefully, we seem to have a natural tendency to focus on uh, the being, the object, the activity, the environment, or whatever it is that's giving rise to a particular sense of Vedana. And then to move very quickly from there on to, you know, I must have it, or I must get rid of it, or whatever the case may be. You know, that's dependent origination in a nutshell, that process. The Venerable Dhammadina was a nun who lived at the time of the Buddha. It's said that she attained full enlightenment uh, quite quickly, uh, much more quickly than her former spouse, who had ordained a little while before her as a monk, and following her enlightenment, she began. She she went on to become an important teacher. As I said she was the foremost teacher from the nuns' community, and she's in fact the only woman whose teaching is represented in the Pali Canon. Most of the discourses are attributed to the Buddha. A few are attributed to some of his male disciples, and then there's Dhammadina. <laughs> One time she gave a discourse, and it was reported back to the Buddha what she had said. And his response was basically, well, I couldn't have said it any better myself. (laughs) So that discourse went into the canon. The compilers figured it had the Buddha's seal of approval. And she earned the reputation, or the the distinction, of being uh, equal to the Buddha. It was said that listening to her expound the Buddha was the same as listening to the Buddha expound the, the Dharma. That she had the, the, the same ability to present it in this clear, comprehensive, and liberating way, as the Buddha did. So Dhammadina gave this metaphor to illustrate how we uh, mix up Vedana with the sense experience that's giving rise to it. She said, suppose there were a king who had never heard the sound of a lute before. He might hear the sound of a lute and say to his ministers, What, my good men, men is that sound? So delightful, so tantalizing, so intoxicating, so ravishing, so enthralling. They would reply, That sire is called a lute. Then the king would say to them, Go and fetch me that lute. But when they brought him the lute, he would look at it, made of wood, covered in skin, strung with strings, fitted with pegs. He would look at it and say, Enough of your lute! Fetch me that sound that is so delightful, so tantalizing, so intoxicating, so ravishing, so enthralling. So I like this metaphor. <laughs> I think it's very apt. Uh, you know, this is how we naturally tend to relate to experience, again, as untrained worldlings. Uh, we, we hear or see, taste, touch, smell, think something that gives us pleasure, and we think that's a pleasant sound, that's a pleasant sight, that's a pleasant taste, and so on. Rather than noticing the sound, the sight, the taste, and so on, um, are what they are. You know, their physical experiences, having their own particular qualities, you know, pitch, volume, color, shape, flavor, texture. Um, and the pleasure is something else. The Vedana is something else. It's, it's related to the sensory experience. But it's really a different level, a different dimension of the experience. And it takes quite a lot of paying attention, training the awareness to be sensitive to Vedana before we're able to start to see those different strands, each for what they really are. This is part of the process of Vipassana, which means seeing differently, seeing things differently than we normally do which is part of the process of deconstructing, deconstructing experience, unpacking it, so that we come to, can come to really understand what is it that's going on here, rather than what we think is going on here. With practice, we do start to see more and more uh, clearly the field of Vedana, it comes into focus. We may even start to be able to rest in that place, rest in that particular dimension, of experience, just as we might at times rest in the field of the body, ground the experience there, make that our home base. Uh, or we might rest in the field of thinking, following along with mental activity and kind of make that our home base. We can use the field of Vedana in the same, same way. And some of you have mentioned practicing in this way, resting in that field of Vedana following along its ups and downs, the swings of the meter back and forth, and all over the place. So in his instructions about mindfulness of Vedana, the Buddha encouraged us to become aware of that (laughs) Vedana-ometer and to learn to pick up on the presence or the absence of pain and pleasure. Um, But he didn't stop there. There's actually more to the instructions. He made a further refinement to his instructions, which is particularly relevant for us as meditators, an intensive retreat. He pointed out that one of the factors, one of the conditions that influences the arising of pleasure, pain, or neutrality is the quality of the mind itself. The quality of the mind itself. So he made this distinction between what he called worldly feelings, which arise from having some contact with the world, contact through our senses, through having some kind of sense experience, physical experiences, mental experiences, that we then find pleasant, painful, or neutral. He made a distinction between that worldly kind of Vedana, which is what we usually think of in relation to to Vedana, and unworldly Vedana, Unworldly Vedana, which is not connected with the world, not arising from a particular sense experience, but instead driven by the quality of the mind, the quality of the mind itself. So it's independent, to some extent, at least, of the particular sense experience that we're having at the time. So as we notice Vedana, we can begin to become sensitive not only to the qualities of pleasure, pain, neutrality, but to the source of those feelings, the origination of those feelings. Are they arising from contact with a particular sense experience? Or are they arising from the quality of the mind that's receiving the experience? This is a subtle but uh, interesting and important distinction. It may sound rather abstract at first, but if we pay attention, um, we'll see that we actually experience a lot of unworldly Vedana, um, especially here in retreat, but not only here in retreat. Many of you have been coming in for your discussions uh, with us um, and making uh, these very beautiful uh, declarations of joy, gratitude, appreciation for this place. It's it's lovely to hear the frame of mind that you're in. It's great to um, be surrounded by nature at this lovely time of the year, what most of us probably (laughs) perceive as lovely. And, uh, you know, there's the simplicity here and, uh, you know, things aren't very luxurious, but there's this kind of quiet zen aesthetic to the buildings and the the infrastructure here that's very pleasing you know Um, and of course there's the quiet this wonderful quiet and stillness here Um, so this place does have many appealing attributes although certainly not everyone in the world would view spending some weeks or months here (laughs) as their chosen uh, activity not everyone perceives this place believe it or not as incredibly pleasant (laughs) So to some extent, we self-select. You know, those of us that are here, we enjoy this kind of setting or we wouldn't have come. But it's also very clear in speaking with you that that's not all that's going on. You know, What makes it so nice here, really, is in large part the influence of, of mindfulness. It's the influence of the awareness that you're cultivating. When I get to the point in a retreat where I sit down with a cup of tea and it is just a transcendent experience you know it seems like just the best cup of tea that's ever been brewed in history you know in the history of tea is just so pleasant um, that sends off kind of the bell ding 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 <laughs> that mindfulness is really uh, dominating that experience dominating the dominating the Vedana in that experience has kind of taken over the reins of the Vedana um, the cup of tea is nice enough, you know, but if you'd transported it back to my kitchen <laughs> on an average morning at home, probably it would not quite be quite so ecstatic an experience. Uh, what makes it so pleasant is the quality of mind that's there with it, receiving it, that's open, that's aware, that's fully taking it in, fully um, feeling the pleasure that's there. The strengthening of all of the Enlightenment factors, mindfulness initially, but also the ones that follow, balanced energy, uh, real intimacy with experience, joyful interest, tranquility, collectiveness and unification of mind, Uh, all of these produce pleasant, unworldly feelings, to a large extent, independent of what the sense experience may be at the time. Probably most of us have had the experience of shifting into this mode where we're just sitting and following along with the breath or we're out wherever we walk, doing the walking meditation or something else very mundane that we've noticed hundreds, thousands, millions of times. Um, And there's some kind of shift. And it starts to seem like just following along with the breath just following along with the steps, it's just absolutely delightful, really pleasant, uh, in a way that it wasn't maybe five minutes ago. It's not that there's anything special about uh, that breath or that step. It's the quality of the mind that's present with those experiences that's conditioning unworldly pleasant feeling. So we see this often if we pay attention you know, once we're on the lookout for it, we see very often how this arises, especially in retreat like this. We sometimes call unworldly, pleasant feeling, uh, the dharma goodies, the Dhamma goodies of practice. Uh, or as the Buddha said, the benefits of the practice that are visible here and now, good in and of themselves. Um, and it's okay <laughs> to, to have those experiences, just in case you're wondering. It's okay to enjoy practice, to enjoy these pleasures of practice. It's actually more than okay. Uh, They're said to be onward leading. They help us along the path in many ways. Um, Ironically, we may have difficulty, some of us, in accepting or relaxing into the Dharma pleasures that do arise. Uh, Some of us might have been conditioned to have the idea that if if we feel good... (laughs) if it's easy, if it's pleasant, uh, then we must not be working hard enough. There must be some problem, <laughs> you know, something we need to fix. No pain, no gain. Or some of us may have been conditioned in our lives to be uncomfortable with pleasure for one reason or another, that may not feel safe, that we may not feel like we deserve it. You know, there can be various um, hindrances around really opening to pleasure that we may have to work through uh, as they arise, which is also just part of the path. That's not a problem either. Some of us may have had a lot of pain, whether physical or emotional, um, a lot of difficulties in our lives, and we may need a good long drink of Dharma pleasure for healing, for strength, for rejuvenation, so that we can continue along the path. Uh, Some of us really need that deep nourishment, and that's also part of the path. And then, too, Dharma pleasures have this way of helping to wean us off of worldly pleasures, like a baby being weaned from milk onto solid food. You know, the milk is perfectly appropriate at a certain developmental stage, but eventually... To grow and flourish, the child needs solid food to grow up, to mature. So in a similar way, once we've had a real taste of deep tranquility, pervading spiritual joy, that wonderful cup of tea, um, the walk in the woods where we felt at one with everything, uh, once we've tasted that, then the next episode of the Game of Thrones may not have quite the same appeal. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So repeated experience of Dharma pleasures, it it takes some of the shine off of worldly pleasures. It shows us that there's more nourishing kinds of pleasure and more reliable sources of pleasure than what can be had through the senses, which is really useful. It's really uh, helpful on the path those uh, experiences of unworldly pleasure may be for some time what keeps us coming back to do this demanding work of retreat. You know, it can be in the back of our minds, you know, I had that really nice sitting on my last retreat and I'd like to have some more of that, you know, or whatever it was. Um, And that's all okay. You know, if that's what gets us here for as long as it takes, then that's all right. That's part of the path as long as we're aware of it, as long as we're mindful of that. The Buddha said, if by giving up a lesser pleasure, a greater one may be gained, a wise person gives up the lesser pleasure in favor of the greater. Of course, uh, eventually, we'll need to be weaned off of Dharma pleasures as well. That's also part of the process. But they have a big role to play the many places on the path. If there's not enough joy and delight as we go along, then it's, it's difficult to take in some of the really hard and painful truths that we will face along the way. In the time of the Buddha, there lived a handsome young man who was the son of a goldsmith who lived in Savati, one of the main cities, in Northern India that comes up in stories about the Buddha's life quite often. And this young man had grown up in his father's workshop, apprenticing to learn all the qualities of gold and gemstones and how to make all sorts of beautiful ornaments from them. And one day as he was out in the streets running errands for his father, he happened to see the venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's right-hand man, walking on alms round gathering his single meal for the day and he was so struck by the nobility and the radiance of the venerable monk's countenance that he followed him almost without meaning to and spoke with him and began to seek him out day after day and eventually he was able to convince his father to allow him to leave home and become a monk under the venerable Sariputta's guidance. Now Sariputta, who was second only to the Buddha in wisdom, it said, reflected that this new monk was very young and very handsome and used to being around beautiful things and was probably very inclined toward craving for sense pleasure and attachment to beauty. So he instructed him to practice a subha bhavana, The reflection on the repulsiveness of the body and specifically uh, at that time, as was traditionally done and still practiced today uh, by studying decaying corpses, contemplating the decay of the body after death. And Sariputta thought that this would be a good way to curb this young, young man's sensual tendencies And the young monk was very enthusiastic, he was very inspired by his teacher, so he took up this practice and followed Sariputta's instructions as best he could. But four months came and went, and he hadn't made the slightest progress in his meditation. Sariputta was somewhat surprised that his approach hadn't worked, but eventually he had to admit that something was now working for this young monk. So he brought him to visit the Buddha, who saw with his psychic power that this person had been a goldsmith for his last 500 existences, and that his mind was understandably very attuned to the qualities of gold. So the Buddha took a different approach with him. Using his supernormal powers, he created a radiant golden lotus flower, which he gave to the young monk, saying, here, my son, take this flower. Find a quiet spot to sit and gaze at it and notice golden, golden as you contemplate its color. The monk took the flower and was delighted with this new meditation subject compared to what Sariputta had had him doing. (laughs) So he sat and gazed at the flower and was completely enthralled and fascinated by its radiant beauty, And as he gazed at it, his mind became very still and peaceful and concentrated. The Buddha, meanwhile, was keeping tabs on the monk's meditation. And when he saw that the monk was in the right frame of mind, he caused the golden golden lotus to begin to wither, little by little, and fade. One petal after another shriveled and fell to the ground. And without thinking too much about it, the young monk got the truth of dukkha, that no matter how pleasant an experience, it's bound to change, not just the flower, but everything within and around him. And as he contemplated in this way, he soon became one of the arahants, a fully enlightened being. And everyone lived happily ever after, <laughs> as, the, as these stories generally end. <laughs> There's a good teaching in there. (laughs) Hmm. Unfortunately, uh, there is also such a thing as unworldly, unpleasant feeling, which we're also bound to encounter along the path. There are stages of practice where uh, the Vedna that we're experiencing, again, due to the quality of the mind, is mostly unpleasant, regardless of what's going on in the present moment with the senses. We might find that something that we would normally find pleasant, enjoyable, um, doesn't give us that uh, gratification. We don't get that hit from it. Or we may even find it disappointing or distasteful, or even at times disgusting, uh, really repulsive. That can happen. Or we may find that Just everything, regardless of how we normally experience it, good, bad, or indifferent, just leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Everything seems to have uh, an unpleasant aftertaste, an unpleasant aura around it. Nothing seems to really give pleasure or delight. This tends to be the case when we're seeing things through the filter of the insight into dukkha, the insight into unsatisfactoriness the insight into the what's sometimes called the unlovely, the unbeautiful nature of experience, which is also part of the truth. Some of us will spend more time in this terrain than others. You know, For some of us, this is really the doorway to liberation, is through really coming close and seeing deeply the truth of dukkha. But for all of us, we're going to spend some time in this terrain on the path. We have to get the truth of of dukkha, we have to get that first noble truth um, to a certain depth, and probably repeatedly as we go along the path. There's a lot of dukkha to see. And sometimes it can take a long time to absorb and digest certain levels of dukkha, certain aspects of dukkha. That also is part of the process of weaning ourselves from the fascination with pleasure, seeing how conditioned it is, and that it's really possible to relate in a very different way, that everything really does have this dukkha aspect, this dukkha quality to it. It may seem at times like we're, we're stuck in dukkha mode, and we can feel like this isn't what should be happening. What happened to all of that unworldly pleasure you know, all of the enlightenment factors must have departed. I must have done something wrong to uh, abandon them. But if, but it's really just part of the process. Um, of course, in our culture, uh, inevitably, at one or many points along the path, we have to ask the question: Is it dukkha or is it depression? <laughs> because it's not always clear, and they're not mutually exclusive. You know so we, we have to navigate uh, that terrain of the path when we get there, you know with skilled support, with skilled assistance. But to a certain extent, um, there's just no avoiding, avoiding it. There's a certain amount of unworldly, unpleasant Vedna that's going to be part of the process. And then again, there's also neutral, unworldly feeling. I remember um, being so bored in the early years of my practice. Boredom, anyone? <laughs> and so much of this is just so boring. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but I was re- as I was reflecting for this talk, I realized um, how less bored I tend to be these days. That really has shifted. Um, we tend not to want to fess up to boredom for some reason even though it's so common and really so natural. You know, sitting still, feeling the body, following the breath. uh, That's not uh, something that we're usually immediately enthusiastic about. It's a bit of an acquired taste. But boredom is actually uh, a good sign. It's a sign that we're acclimating to neutral feeling. It's a sign that we're actually present with neutral feeling, even though we may still be aversive to it. We could think of boredom as aversion to neutral feeling. So we don't need to uh, do anything about boredom. Boredom is actually, again, part of the process. Um, All we need to do is to leverage off of that presence with neutral feeling to to begin to tune into it more and more. And we may actually see, you know, as the strand of, of aversion, as the strands of neutral feeling become more clear, we might start to see that's what behind, what's behind that neutral feeling is actually calm, actually tranquility, actually equanimity, that we may not have noticed at first. And then once those come into focus, usually we stop being so bored. We learn to relax into it, to relax into neutral feeling, which can actually be quite nice. As equanimity grows and deepens, that last enlightenment factor uh, neutral feeling becomes much more predominant, can become very predominant in our experience to where we're not even really uh, experiencing much pleasure or pain, uh, worldly or unworldly. The, the predominant feeling may, for long periods of time, or for certain periods of time, be very neutral, which we can amazingly come to prefer. <laughs> we can acquire a taste for that uh, peace, that calm of neutral feeling as opposed to the extremes of both pet pleasure and pain. We may come to prefer neutral feeling even over pleasure because it's calmer, it's more tranquil. The Buddha spoke often about peace as being the highest happiness. That said that the mind of an arahant is dominated by equanimity not by bliss. That's the direction of the path. So we may find as we go along that there is more of this relaxing into, opening up to neutral feeling. That's the result of growing equanimity. In relation to all Vedana, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, worldly or unworldly, um, I often bring to mind the image of the, the Buddha Rupa here which is the same image that's over in the retreat center hall, also the, the image of the Buddha touching the earth, um, standing his ground or keeping his seat in the face of all experiences that would influence him to uh, lose his mindfulness, lose his inspiration, his sense of purpose. And I find uh, this image you know, very instructive just in its attitude, you yeah, that's why we put it up here, right? <laughs> it's to inspire all of us, to remind us, uh, to, to model for us the quality of energy, the quality of attention that really is supportive of insight and opening. There's no struggle there. Uh, there's no aggression there. Just this kind of quiet, confident presence and alertness which is just what we need in relationship to all Vedana, the good, the bad, the ugly, the worldly, the unworldly. I'd like to end with just a little thought exercise, kind of thinking about, you know, what does this image convey to you? What's What's the sense that you get of the effort there, the alertness, the joy, the tranquility, all of those enlightenment factors that the Buddha perfected? And then just to reflect to yourself, what would it mean to to manifest that quality in the face of physical pain? So you might just bring to mind some time that you've wrestled with physical pain, whether it's been today or some other point in your practice. You know, how would it be to meet that with this quality that the Buddha embodies here? And then maybe bringing to mind some time when you've experienced uh, mental or emotional pain, one of those times when there's been an onslaught of obsessive thinking, uh, mulling over some past pain, painful memory, or some conflict we're involved in, all of those different kinds of mental storms that can come up. What would it mean to meet that experience also with this kind of quality? And considering the other end of the dial, the other end of the meter, uh, we might bring to mind a time of uh, very strong physical pleasure. If we've had one here, uh, maybe that cup of tea, the chocolate today, walking out in the woods, uh, lying down in bed at the end of the day, (laughs) bringing to mind some, some memory of pleasant experience here or in the outside world and what would it mean to meet that in the same way really with full presence the same quality of steadfastness not collapsing into the pleasure not indulging it spacing out but really to be continue to be present and alive to it. Then we could consider the middle of the dial. Very boring time, (laughs) or a very neutral time. So it could be either ordinary boredom, that sense of not much going on, dissatisfaction with that, or just a really neutral time. Many of you are having spells of deep calm and equanimity, lots of neutral feeling. What would it mean to bring the same quality of presence to that? To really stay in contact with the neutral feeling in the moment, not losing the strand of awareness, but really continuing to meet it. So the instruction you know, in all aspects of Vedana is to approach um, all of them, all of the different flavors of Vedana with the same quality of steady interest, awareness, openness, not struggling or shutting down when it's painful, not indulging or going into autopilot when it's pleasant, um, not spacing out, not losing touch when it's neutral, staying engaged, and in that way, you know, gradually, little by little, we come to understand more and more clearly the nature of Vedana, how it operates in our lives, and to decouple our sense of well being from pleasure and pain, and to connect it more and more with the quality of heart and mind that's uh, peaceful and caring in the face of whatever arises which is a radical and intriguing possibility that the Buddha held out to us. This is the ending of the Mangala Sutta, the discourse on blessings. The Buddha said that a mind that's unshaken when touched by life's vicissitudes, sorrowless, fearless, and untroubled, this is the blessing supreme. Those who have fulfilled all these are everywhere invincible. They find well being everywhere. Theirs is the blessing supreme.